0: Welcome to the second lecture in the Faber Members Literature and Psychoanalysis series. Uh, For those of you who didn't come to our last lecture, my name is Arabelle Shala. I'm a psychonomic therapist and I'm a course tutor at the Faber Academy. I run a course called Getting Into Character, teaching authors the principles of psychoanalytic theory in order to help them delve into character and narrative from new angles. These lectures are hosted by Faber members. A literary arts program that offers special events and news for people who love books. The Literature and Psychomasters series is part of a wider plan to offer a greater variety of exciting events for members of different arts and disciplines and dialogue. And anyone who's not already a member can join on Facebook's website. So, our aim in developing this lecture series was to introduce a wider audience of readers and writers to the ways in which psychoanalysis and literature can speak to and of each other, and the rewards to be found in such conversation. With the help of four guest psychoanalysts, we want to explore both how fiction can illuminate psychoanalytic theory, and how psychoanalytic theory can help readers to engage more deeply with fiction. For it seems to us that essentially, literature and psychoanalysis are interested in the same question. They're interested in the story of what makes us who we are and why. For those of you unfamiliar with it, psychoanalysis is the study of personal development, the exploration of how and why we become who we are. Like both readers and writers, psychoanalysts are very interested in stories, in narratives and histories. When I meet a new client, just as when I open a new level, I'm instantly reading at different levels. I'm thinking about the content of the story that someone is telling me. I'm thinking about the way in which they construct and articulate their narrative. I'm thinking about how their account themselves makes me feel. So I analyse as a psychotherapist in many of the same ways that I analyse as a reader. The four lectures in this series are broadly themed to cover four major analytic areas of interest. Early infancy, families, love and desire, and loss and mourning. And today for our second lecture we're thinking about families. And our title is Origin Myths, Family Histories, Family Scripts. I think this idea of family stories is equally fascinating to both psychoanalysts and to authors. And Tolstoy famously suggested in Anna Karenina that all happy families are alike, each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And this is a question to which novelists and psychoanalysts return again and again. What was the particular unhappiness of a particular family? Uh, So in the first session, I'll often ask a client about their family narratives, their family stories, the story of their first word, their first step, the way in which they feature in family jokes. I might ask whether in their family <coughs> script, their cast is the good one, the responsible one, the funny one, the disappointment. And in asking about these family narratives, I'm not trying to find out something about my client's essential identity, who they are, I'm trying to find out something about the role that they've been casting within their family, and by implication, something about the family itself the preconceptions, the expectations, the assumptions. I'm interested in the ways in which the stories told within a family may have affected my client's sense of self and may have shaped the stories that they tell about themselves. And to help us in thinking about this further, I'm delighted to introduce Josh Cohen. Psychoanalyst, author and reader. Josh is Psychoanalyst in Private Practice and Professor of Literary Theory at Goldsmiths University of London. He's he's the author of numerous books and articles on psychoanalysis, literature and culture, including How to Read Freud and Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark. He writes regular articles and reviews for the TLS, Guardian and New Statesman. His new book, Not Working, Why We Have to Stop, is being published in January. And he's currently writing a book, Exploring the Life Cycle from a Literary and Psychotherapeutic Perspective. So when we asked Josh to suggest a novel which he felt could illuminate our thinking on family narratives, he chose Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. When Rooney's W novel was published by Faber last year, it met with instant critical and popular acclaim. Rooney was hailed as millennial fiction's most important voice. Her novel is Stallinger for the Snapchat generation. Conversations became, appropriately, one of the most talked about novels of 2017. Mm -hmm. Set in Dublin, the novel explores the complicated relationships between a group of four people and the variety of different couples that they form. Husband and wife, Melissa and Nick, are a writer and actor in their early 30s. Bobby and Francis are 21-year-old university students. Once lovers, now best friends. When the two pairs meet, Melissa and Bobby are instantly drawn to one another. It is, however, the tentative attraction between Nick and Frances which will ultimately prove them all compelling, a force which will fundamentally reconfigure the dynamics between and within the couples. In the backdrop of the novel, are another two couples, Bobby's parents, in the midst of a complicated divorce, and Francis's parents, long divorced and for much of the novel entirely estranged as Francis' father descends into alcoholism and paranoia. So this is a novel about couples and about communication, a novel about the attempt to bridge the gap between two people, to communicate creatively. It's a novel about the fruits and failures of intercourse, its importance and its impossibility. And the miscommunications in this novel are as frequent and as painful as in any Shakespearean comedy. Efforts at communication are prolific. We read texts, emails, instant messages, page after page of dialogue. And yet true communication resulting in true understanding is painfully elusive. Language is both torrential and slippery. It means just as much to conceal and to evade as it is to reveal and to connect. And time after time in the space between couples, Melissa and Nick, Nick and Francis, Francis and Bobby, meaning drains impotently away. So this is a fascinating novel through which to explore the idea that our sense of identity is shaped both by the stories we are told about ourselves and by the stories that we tell. Frances, the narrator of the novel, is engaged in a constant struggle to explain herself without ever being quite sure of just what herself consists of. And it's striking how often other people tell Frances who and what she is, and how rarely she makes a claim for her own identity, to the point where she wonders if she even has a personality at all. How much of this, we might ask, is the result of Francis's having been profoundly unseen as a child, unrecognized to the point where she's become completely alienated from her own experience and sense of self? You're tough, you can cope with things, Francis's mother tells her daughter as a statement this is both definitive and reductive, entirely lacking in curiosity. It shuts down any further possibility of communication, connection, or understanding. The novel also plays with the suggestion that here in this group of four individuals, what we have is a sort of family. As Frances herself says, writing to Bobby, when there were four of us, I always thought in terms of couples anyway. You and Nick you and Melissa, even Nick and Melissa. But now I see that nothing consists of two people or even three. My relationship with you is also produced by your relationship with Melissa, and with Nick, and with your childhood self. So we all, in a sense, carry our families inside us. We tell and retell family stories that we've been told. And this manifests itself in the way that we think about ourselves, in the way that we describe ourselves to other people, the roles that we take up in relationships. We are all, as Frances thinks to herself, made by other humans, struggling to create happy children and families, me all the language I know. Here in this new family group, however, Frances has found three people who, in varying ways and with varying motives, are at least interested in who Frances really is and in what she has to say for us. They're interested in the stories she tells, not just the old stories, but the new ones, the ones that Frances is working out as she tells them. Her friends listen actively. They try to respond, they want to know. And occasionally, just very occasionally, these efforts at communication result in true connection, something appropriative and new. And in this way, Sally Rooney and psychoanalysis share the same fundamental concern both are acutely interested in what's going on when two people are having a conversation, and perhaps even more importantly, both are interested in the ways in which our conversations can change us. I'm going to hand over to Josh now.
1: Thank you for that really lovely um, introduction, Um, (coughs) Arabelle. It eases us beautifully into my talk but also hopefully into the discussion that we're going to have afterwards. Um, I'm very glad actually to be sort of taking on a novel which I'm hoping is hot in people's hands that you know you're talking about that has a kind of live place in your minds and bodies. Um, you know, as soon as last asks me. I, I did my sort of pseudo smart person thing and started thinking, you know, Turgenev, Henry James. Um, uh, but it, it occurred to me that rather than sort of make you dust this off your shelves or dig it out, excavate it from the chambers of deepest memory, it would be really interesting to think about a book that is circulating um, in you and around you um, in, in our conversations. So, I'm going to start by talking a bit at at a general level about the relationship as I see it between literature and psychoanalysis. And my way in is through a rather lovely essay of 1940 from the American critic Lionel Trilling, called simply Freud and Literature. But it's it's an important essay because what he does there is he cuts through that tendency that some of you may be familiar with from some angle um, for psychoanalytic writing on literature to turn into a kind of pathologization of literary characters, as though you could put them on the couch, give them a quick diagnosis, um, and then send them on their way, um, cure if any little people um, worked, um, So it's so easy as that. we well, might be out of a job, I suppose. Or at least we'd have much higher turnover. Um, uh, but he argued that the affinity between psychoanalysis and literature had very little to do with the psychoanalysis of the content of a text that the tracking of the Oedipus complex in a character or the diagnoses of the neuroses the pathologies of another character that really wasn't where the affinity between these two ways of thinking and writing lay The affinity is actually more basic. It's between the structure of the mind and the structure of the work. The mind, according to Freud, as Trilling sees it, thinks poetically. That's what he thinks is Freud's first achievement, that he gives us a picture of a human mind that actually thinks poetically. What does that mean? The Freudian mind is one that is given to metaphor, to metonymy, to symbolism. It's given to modes of disguise, displacement. It's given to symbolic expression. So literature and psychoanalysis start from the premise that we speak and act indirectly. That our words are, to use a wonderful phrase of Freud's, our words are destined to ambiguity which I think is a very resonant phrase in the context of the book we're discussing. Even in our apparently simplest utterances, there's what we might call an excess of meaning, unintended messages lurking beneath the surface of our manifest communications. That, of course, is why psychoanalysis is so interested in our notorious slips. I didn't mean it like that. Um, Well, here here is this example. An exchange between a pair of furtive lovers over instant messenger. And it runs like this. Me. I can't believe you're breaking up with me over instant messenger. Me. I thought you were going to leave your wife so we could run away together. Nick. You don't need to be defensive. Me. How do you know what I mean? Me. Maybe I'm actually really upset. Nick. Are you? Nick. I never have an idea what you feel about anything. I Me. Mean, well, it doesn't really matter now, does it? Yes, you will recognise this as an exchange between Francis and Nick in Sally Rooney's conversations. There is Francis, the verbal contortionist who expresses her emotional hurt and resentment in flippant jokes, who hints tantalisingly at her real feelings, then withdraws the hint. Nick plays the bewildered straight man in this double act, but he himself isn't so straight. And I realise as I say this that um, one of the really latent um, possibilities of the novel, so latent that nobody mentions it and it may be entirely my own fantasy, but that um, there are this, there is this quartet of sexually ambiguous characters, but there is something sexually very ambiguous about Nick. Um, he hides as ever behind a nice guy of passivity that skillfully masks his own emotions and desires. Now, I doubt that there is anyone here who isn't familiar personally with this kind of emotional doublespeak, where motives and wishes are simultaneously revealed and concealed so that we're never quite sure what the other is saying, or indeed what we are saying. It happens in sexual relationships of course, but across the spectrum of familial, friendship and workplace relationships. Nor will it come as a surprise that we speak in this ambiguous way to hide our true feelings and protect the most vulnerable regions of ourselves. But psychoanalysis goes further and suggests that this tendency to ambiguity is central to who and what we are. It's not a, it's simply a bad habit that we pick up, in other works. Um, it's endemic to our constitution as human beings. It's a basic consequence of having an unconscious. It's also a basic consequence of having been in a family. The novel hints that families are a rich and lasting source for the unconscious transmission of our later relationships. Who we come to love, why and how we come to love them, the obliquities, the confusions, the passions, the inhibitions of our later relationships have their source in earlier ones. And our later relationships also have a strange habit of reinventing and recreating our earlier ones. But before we get into the knots of the family, I want to pull away from Rooney for a moment and say a bit about why our minds and our words might be so readily given to ambiguity. For that, I want to take us back to 1900 and the inaugural, the still most famous text of psychoanalysis, which is 1900, The Interpretation of Dreams. Now, I'm not, I promise you, going to give you um, uh, a detailed exposition of this notoriously detailed, and in some ways, theoretically quite recondite text. I just want to really introduce um, its most basic premise, which is, can be formulated in a few words. The words, in fact, of the title of chapter 3 of the book, which is called, A Dream is the Fulfillment of a Wish. That's Freud's basic formula for the dream. Over about 600 pages, he basically elaborates this premise. Dream is the fulfilment of a wish. What this means is that that dreams are the means by which we give voice to our wishes, which might involve love, riches, fame, security, and, of course, sex. It is early writing Freud's very insistent, most likely too insistent, that all dreams, all dreams are wish fulfillments, and those that appear not to be are, in fact, disguised wish fulfillments. I'm not going to go into why he decided he was wrong about that eventually. Um, I'm just going to give an example. I love the example from the one of the best examples comes from a young woman who's lost her older brother. This is in Waking Life. She's lost her um, older brother. Um, In her dream, she now sees her little brother, who's only about eight years old, lying in a coffin. Now, Does this mean, because she's heard a little bit about Dr Freud's ideas on dreams, does this mean that she secretly harbours a wish for her little brother to die? She wonders then, how can I be so wicked as to want such a thing? Well, Freud tries to reassure her by taking the dream a bit further. Who else is at this funeral, he says. Well, as it turns out, there, there is somebody else there. There's an older man who she's kind of into. So the wish fulfilled in the dream isn't a death wish against her brother. It's an erotic wish for the older man. But isn't this a little, again, a a weird piece of contortion? I mean, is is this another Freud's fantasy? Why why would we need to make this detour through an imagined... um, Family tragedy to, to get to this you know, quite ordinary human wish. As we get older, um, if, if a dreaming self sorry, wants to see the older man, why does it have to find such a madly oblique, indirect way of doing so through her little brother's funeral? Why would her sleeping mind confuse her like this? Well, as we get older, we experience increasing conflict between our most primal impulses our aggressive, our sexual impulses, and the demands of reason as well as of social order. Civilization doesn't license us to go around melding our sexual desires openly, and certainly it would not have been acceptable for a young woman in 20th century Vienna, who would have been expected to obey with due propriety and modesty. But it isn't just a matter of society. We ourselves want to think of ourselves as regulated, controlled, reasonable agents, not as slaves to sexual or aggressive passions. So the young woman finds it hard to acknowledge to herself or anyone else that she desires the soul of the man. And that's where the dream plays a very neat trick. On the one hand, it shows the funeral of a lover, a scene of grief. Well, this is the last place we want to be seen, to be lusting for someone. Right? But put it this way, I'm at my little brother's funeral I can't possibly be lusting after a man. That would make me monstrous. That would make me depraved. So this, we could say, is how the dream then allows us to dream of the person we secretly desire. They come in under the cover of the opposite of sexual desire in a scene of grief. And this way, they also introduce ambiguity. Dreams are the primary example, the first example, of how... We reveal something of our conscious life at the same time that we conceal it, or we disguise it, or we displace it, or we do something that calls attention away from what we're feeling. So the young woman's dream reveals she's in love with a man. It also conceals it by placing it under the cover of a tragic scene where love and sex are the last things we're supposed to be thinking about. So what Trilling is saying in this famous essay is that literature is forever mining this tendency of the mind to express itself ambiguously and the ways in which words lend themselves to this ambiguity. And this is also true of the consultant. The medium of clinical psychoanalysis is ordinary speech. But words in a psychoanalytic session are transfigured, not in the sense, of course, that they become different words, they let become more elevated and profound, people then speak funny and the consult They are transfigured because of the receptivity of the analyst and the neutrality of the setting makes space for the patient and the analyst alike to listen, for the unconscious undertones, the resonances of the patient's words. All those currents of psychic life we screen out, and rightly screen out, at the family breakfast table or at the pub. So hopefully psychotherapy is not you know, a conversation you might have in a pub and you take it somewhere quieter. It is qualitatively different. So her novels are composed of nothing but the materials of ordinary speech. But under her concentrated gaze, everyday observations, passing exchanges, mundane experiences, come to be charged with a strange, unsettling, overabundance of meaning and significance. There are no doubt many thousands of iron exchanges like that one between Francis and and Nick tapped out every day on devices around the world. Rumi's skill, it seems to me, lies in her ability to bring out the rich emotional texture of exchanges like this, not by contriving to make them sound more literary, whatever that would mean, but by doing very little to it. Their very presence on the page allows us to hear how much guile and pain and vulnerability can hover below the surface of an apparently unexceptional scratchy exchange. As an orator, of Francis has something in common with Freud's young female dreamer. She's in the grip of feelings whose intensity threatens her sense of psychic and even bodily integrity. Feelings she prefers to deny or disguise or dismiss. In fact. She carries the same burden as the dreamer. She's in love with someone and would rather neither she nor anyone else knew it. Certainly, the last person she wants to know is the person that she loves. In fact, really, the clock turns around her efforts to make sure that the person she loves doesn't know that she loves him. Perhaps this has something to do, then, with what we might call the libidinal culture of the moment. In the great romantic novels of the 19th century, love is directed towards one person of the opposite sex to whom the lover swears undying devotion. This, of course, isn't to suggest that there haven't always been deviations from heterosexual monogamy throughout the course of history, only that they haven't always been licensed by culture and law or, indeed, by literature. In the 21st century West, we're forming relationships under very different conditions. The ongoing feminist and sexual liberation struggles since the 60s have left us far less constrained by societal, cultural and legal limits on the quantity, sexual orientation and gender identity of those that we choose to love. And this is more than a cultural change. There's always an emotional correlate to the external conditions under which we love. In novels such as The Sorrows of Young Werther, or Wuthering Heights, or Anna Karenina, the protagonists don't come to love by way of steady, thoughtful contemplation of the loved one's virtues and attractions. On the contrary, their love is something they simply know instantly. They know it, body and soul, without having to think about or question it. Though there are also as many exceptions, even in the 19th century, of course. Austen, George Eliot. James. They all show us loves which err and falter and come through the forest of doubt and ambivalence. So I'm not suggesting that our time has somehow invented doubt and ambivalence. Um, But Rooney's novel also seems to me to ask a fundamental and very venerable question about love. Is it who we love that matters? Or is it the impulse of love itself? With our modern romantic inheritance, our culture is inclined always to take the first option. Love is realized when it is invested in someone. To love, you must love someone. Freud was actually among the first to challenge this modern orthodoxy in what sounds like a piece of modern of common sense. Um, in the first of his uh, three essays on the theory of sexuality, he makes a very useful distinction between what he calls the object of the sexual drive, right, the person that we love, in other words, or the person we lust after, and the drive itself, the impulse to love or the lustful impulse. In our modern culture of love, he writes in 1910, we emphasize the object. Our conception of love is bound up with the person we love. Right, I don't just love randomly, I love this person. The erotic life of antiquity, says Freud, differed from ours in this regard. Where Freud's society found sex distasteful and could sanction it only within the tightly-bounded space of the nuclear family, the ancients, he said, glorified the drive. What mattered was not who you loved. You, you could actually love quite an abject, unworthy object. What elevated them was not who they were, but the fact that you conferred the energy the spirit of love on them. Right? They glorify the drive and were prepared on its account to honour even an inferior object. Perhaps in our own day, the pendulum is swinging back, falteringly towards the ancient model. For example, we have increasingly vocal proponents of polyamory though the love of one person is no barrier to the love of others. They're clearly seeking to, to promote the instinct over the object. If love is a good, why not spread it as widely and generously as possible, rather than concentrate it exclusively in one person? Now, we don't necessarily have to sign up to these structured experiments to sense that the waning of the expectation of a soul, lifelong love has cleared a space in all of us, including those of us who are still invested in this strange project of what we call a long-term relationship. Um, it's clear a space in us to puzzle over the possible shapes and sizes of love to question and doubt what it is we want from it. Which is bound to be a more puzzling and unsettling question if you've never internalised a lively model of erotic love. France's sense of love is conditioned by a parental couple who seem always to have related to each other in the negative in the form of physical and emotional alienation and incomprehension. But much as we shouldn't understate the place of historical change in determining the ways we love, perhaps we should be equally wary of overstating it. If conversation shows us how much our post-liberation age has transformed the conduct of love, it also reminds us how much stays the same. Confusion, anxiety, volatility are not new phenomena. Freud's comments about the ancients help us recall that the mobility and the unpredictability of sexual desire has been a fundamental force in human life and human history. Like Wuthering Heights, Rooney's novels turn on the weed and unsettling proximity of love to cruelty. In the relationship she portrays, tenderness and intimacy serve again and again as a virtual cue for the infliction of some casually brutal hurt rejection, belittlement, willful misunderstanding. In novels, as in life, we find that the inner self is annoyingly uncongenial to the maintenance of a steady state. The problem, at least as psychoanalysis, is, is, is that the self is divided, it is pulled, in different directions by different impulses. It wants safety, but it wants risk. It wants consistency, but it wants change. It wants to say yes, and it wants to say no. Just as an aside, there is a notion, I think, about the psychoanalytic unconscious, that it's this voracious creature that only ever says yes, but in fact the unconscious also says no. That's why we have this thing called repression. Perhaps this is why the people we so often accuse of being boring are also the most reliable and straightforward. Their alleged boringness lies in their willingness to keep a distance from the constant agitations of their inner lives, a capacity to live closer to the surface, where changes are a little more amenable to our control. We don't tend to brood over or question decisions that are purely practical. What time train will you get for work? What time will you make the restaurant reservation? Only when that decision becomes coloured emotionally, I'm happy in your job, who are you meeting at the restaurant? Do we start to doubt ourselves, to feel the anxiety of uncertainty? Paradoxically, then, it's our strongest and most undeniable feelings that tend to provoke the greatest confusion in us. When we fall in love, we at first enjoy being carried on the wave of exhilaration. But we may feel frightened, even scandalised, by the way the reassuring habits and pleasures of our life previously Enjoying food, spending time alone, doing a good day's work, have been so ruthlessly upended. What is happening to me? We ask ourselves. Who have I become? It's easy to imagine hatred and <coughs> resenting the very person we love for the person they have for the power they have over us. It can also cause us to question whether sexual love is the right basis for a lasting relationship. One of the reasons conversations with friends is so intriguing is that it's deliberately ambiguous as to which of Frances' two key relationships is her authentic authentic first love. Is it the older married man, Nick, with whom she experiences such ecstatic erotic transport? Or is it her ex-girlfriend, now her best friend, Bobby, with whom she enjoys a more reassuring bond of shared experience of mutual understanding, albeit one that turns out to be a lot more fragile than it seems? To complement matters a bit more, both sets of feelings are liable to swift reversal. Francis periodically switches into cold hostility towards Nick, into scratchy rivalry with Bobby. Instead of hitting her with a lightning bolt of total certainty, love immerses her in a cloud of confusion. But why is Francis so peculiarly given over to emotional denial, to obfuscation, to confusion? What makes it so difficult for someone so luminously intelligent to express love simply and straightforwardly? This, we can say, is the classic psychoanalytic question. How does a person's current mode of relating, current mode of loving, reveal their inner history? In passing recollections of childhood, Francis gives us glimpses of a marriage, her parents' marriage. The scene seems up to its bitter dissolution to have been a long exercise in evading all contact. It had been obvious to me from a young age, Francis says, that my parents didn't like one another. Couples in films and on television performed household tasks together and talked fondly about their shared memories. I couldn't remember seeing my mother and father in the same room unless they were eating. So this is not just a memory of an external scene. It's actually a revelation of a a kind of internal atmosphere. There is no internalised couple in this young woman. So love is always experienced as dissonance, as the friction of two fundamentally misaligned souls. From the very beginning of the novel, Frances lets us know just how much energy she invests in not giving herself away. We meet her in the back of a cab with Bobby and Nick's wife Melissa. Already, she says, already preparing compliments and certain facial expressions to make myself seem charming. As she gets more tired and more drunk, she finds it increasingly difficult, she says, to arrange my face in a way that would convey my sense of humour. I love like that. A little later, as she watches Nick buttoning a shirt on the stage as brick cat in the Hopton roof, she says she felt a sting of self-consciousness, as if the audience had all turned at this moment to observe my reaction. So in each of these moments, Francis can only access her inner self by way of a long-winded detour through the eyes of others. The tingle of lust she feels on, glimpsing Nick's muscle torso, becomes a sting of self-consciousness. She feels not her eye on him, but their eyes on her, on him. So falling in love for the first time is very difficult for someone. Those feelings of overwhelming surprise and delirious surrender we find in those great novels of erotic love do not circulate so freely around Francis' body and soul. Think of um, the one of the many sort of break-up routes um, where she um, not only gets traumatically upset, but disavows her own upset. So um, he says to her, in the course of their falling out, you're not jealous, Francis, are you? He said, do you think I have feelings for you? Don't be embarrassing. So she can't decide what to feel about it, um, what it means. Whatever exceeds our rational comprehension, um, threatens not just to confuse her, but actually to undo her. You have a sense of her kind of just teetering on the edge of, of falling apart at the seams. And of course, you have this kind of this very somatized or physicalized, physi- physiological version of this um, in the development of endometriosis. The exception perhaps is in bed with Nick where the sheer force of her pleasure wears down her defences and allows her to enjoy bodily and emotional intimacy with a directness and intensity that's missing from the rest of her life. How are we doing for time? Mm. Well, keep going. Oh, okay, good. But the intensity also threatens to undo her. The sheer force of her feelings are in excess of her capacity to understand, so she becomes strange to herself her animal pleasures, her emotional whirlwinds, felt as though they were happening to someone else. Um, And after one of the first epic lovemaking scenes, she finds that tears are falling from her eyes, but as though those tears really belonged to somebody else. Little tears had started slipping out of my eyes and down onto the pillow. I wasn't sad. I didn't know why I was crying. I'd had this problem before with Bobby who believed it was an expression of my repressed feelings." Bobby's interpretation is sort of maddeningly precocious, like so much of what he says, and at the same time, it's oddly on the mark. Um, It is something to do with repressed feelings. It is something to do, in fact, with split-off feelings, as we would say. with feelings that we need to really keep outside, right outside the edges of consciousness. So why is sexual pleasure so overwhelming? Why is the erotic bond that sexual pleasure creates so unsettling? Because it have something to do with our origins in a family which is so poor in erotic bonds, where the child has never experienced itself as the creation of a couple who are joined in love. Remember, when they're together, They're not together, right? They're only together when eating, in other words, when performing a vital function, not when performing an erotic function. Frances' early experiences of love, so thin, so tentative, so wary, fail to orient her along the treacherous paths of adult love. Her obfuscations of her own feelings deceive herself as much as they do others. Her dissembling is less manipulative or duplicitous than anxious. It's a function of her basic mistrust in her own intuitions. She hears messages from her interior, but she is unsure whether she can credit anything her interior says to her. She's never known a model of emotional self-knowledge, of love that can express itself freely and uninhibitedly. And it may be, Pache Freud, Pache dreams, it may be that there is no such thing, but there is no such thing as a love that can express itself freely and uninhibitedly. This is one of the strange elemental truths that I think comes through at every moment of this novel. The novel invites us to inhabit an emotional landscape of perpetual, often violent swings between passion and indifference, between a vulnerable openness and an invulnerable self-sealing against the violent intrusions of love. The families alluded to throughout the novel, the real families of Nick and Bobby, as well as Francis, as well as the pseudo-families of the phantom parental couple, Nick and Melissa, and their phantom children, Francis and Bobby, their evil twins, have each in their own way contributed to this atmosphere of perpetual insecurity. By this logic, Francis writes, Nick and Melissa were like my parents, bringing me into the world, probably hating and loving me even more than my original parents did. This also meant I was Bobby's evil twin, which didn't seem at the time like taking the metaphor too far. So hating and loving more than one's own parents as though life and love can only take the form of catastrophic repetition. Which is oddly really true for us, of course, and that experience that we haven't processed, experience that isn't metabolized by us emotionally, does this is one of the basic formulas of psychoanalytic theory and psychoanalytic work, that experiences we haven't processed do indeed risk repeat themselves compulsively. Families in this novel, it seems to me, have that kind of presence in this novel that Freud describes. Sexual desire in dreams, but trilling swords the hallmark of literature. That is, they're everywhere and they are nowhere. They're only rarely the subject of conscious, direct conversation or reflection. Um, there are no blood relationships, in fact, among these friends whose conversations we're privy, privy to. Families secrete themselves surreptitiously in the texture of all the novel's relationships, and even more so in the inner life of the narrator. Frances' mother relates to her with the warmth and availability of a nice aunt. Even in her most uncomplicatedly benign moments, we get the sense of something withheld, of an unwillingness or an incapacity to be in touch with the madly possessive, zealous, erotic charge of the maternal unconscious. Our father is too damaged, too steeped in shame and self-disgust to risk the emotional declaration he seems always, tragically, to teeter on the edge of before withdrawing once again. You know, we keep having to ask ourselves, what is that one thing he wants to say on the phone? And the novel tantalises us with the possibility that he might be telling that he's terminally ill or... He might be telling her some deep, dark secret about her origins, but perhaps all he's really unable to tell her is that he loves her. So these withholding tendencies come to shape Frances' conception of herself as emotionally cold, too distant from herself to know how or what even she feels. Love for someone with that history is bound to be shot through with weariness and doubt. A child who can never feel sure she's loved, is also someone unschooled in the knowledge of their own desire. Stripped to its bare bones, Frances' predicament is that she doesn't know what she wants, nor how to go about finding out. Towards the end of the novel, physically and emotionally hollowed out, Frances slips into Dublin's Thomas Street Church, where she asks herself who, if anyone, she really loves. She says, I love my fellow human beings, or do I? Do I love Bobby? after she tore up my story like that and left me alone? Do I love Nick, even if he didn't want to fuck me anymore? Do I love Melissa? Did I ever? Do I love my mother and father? Do I love my mother and father? For psychoanalysis, those are our real and indelible first loves. And if the shadow of doubt is cast on that first love, the next first love will not escape that shadow. The adult can't can't plunge safely into love's seas if she hasn't been taught to swim in them as a child. And even then, of course, it's all too easy to sink. Okay, thank you.
0: So i start by asking questions, and then we're going to open for questions from you. I was thinking, <laughs> but in what you said, I think there's a distinction between love and knowledge, and it's, it feels as though Francis's parents do love her in their way, even if they're not able to say so. Um, what they don't seem very interested in is, is getting to know her, trying to work out who she is, and that leaves Frances, as you said, unschooled in her own desires, and the knowledge of her own desire. but it really feels like by the end of the novel, she's coming out of hiding. She's becoming a lot mm-hmm. more articulate, a lot more self-aware, and a lot more able to express her, her desires, and her desire to be known by others. And I was wondering what you think the novel might suggest. Has been the therapeutic shift, What mm-hmm. is it that's happened that's helped Frances to become more present, more self-aware, more aware of her desires?
1: It, it's so, it's such an interesting question because it of course turns around the ending of the novel yeah, yeah. and that quite brilliant yeah. kind of devastating last line. Now um, you can take that last line as a kind of glorious affirmation of a kind of risky um, go for broke erotic desire that she's finally learned to give herself over to, you could also see it equally plausibly I think, because I don't think the novel resolves this for you, mm-hmm. as a kind of hyper extension of her tendency to self destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's closer to the latter, I think there is a therapeutic shift. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, we we talk sometimes through the cliche of getting worse before you get better, which is not which is not my language, but it's one that comes to mind. But you one thinks of, you know, a a meaningful therapeutic trajectory as, as as not being one in which you sort of incrementally and steadily move from of emotional confusion and inarticulacy to a kind of pristine clarity, but one in which to invoke Winnicott, you just feel more alive. You feel more alive to yourself and to the possibilities of life. Um, I think that the movement is absolutely one from knowledge to love, mm-hmm. that, that in a way what her child has given her is not lovelessness. But love, as a kind of abstract concept, right? you have a sort of skeletal conception of love where <coughs> there is a kind of grammar of love. There, there is a setting with two parents, there is, you know, the basic provision of care, there is some level of you know vital contact, um, you know. Nourishment um, at one level or another, but it's fleshless. Um, there's it, it. It's if you like, psychically fleshless. That there, there, there is, and, and perhaps bodily fleshless as well. Um, uh, and there are there are references, I think, um, in the last part of all when she's looking in disgust at her naked body in the mirror, to a kind of uh, a literal kind of fleshlessness as well. But um, she's not been given what we might call a kind of embodied experience of love. She's not felt um, the touch of human warmth on her skin. She's not felt what it is to to really be an object of mad, unconditional, possessive, overbearing care. She just sort of gets this abstract communication of, we love you. There is something in the world called love and we're, we're transmitting that to you. It's a sort of diagrammatic formula. That's, that's, that's really what circulates for her. I think what happens in the novel, particularly, I think, through ecstasy, but also through friendship, is that she puts flesh on the diagram. Right. Right. It becomes something kind of much more um, languorous and exciting mm-hmm. and bodied.
0: And I suppose, actually, Nick and Melissa, if we are thinking of them as kind of surrogate parents, they they do offer something much more bodily. Both of them feed her, they both cook her delicious meals and give her food that she's never had before, and they are, although not initially, but they become, during the novel, a sexual couple. Nick tells her that they are having sex again, so perhaps you were saying she has no model of a procreative couple, a joint couple. Perhaps she internalises something of a couple with bodies, with physical needs, with hungers yeah. over the course of the novel, and yeah. that perhaps feeds into her relationships with Nick, with yeah, and Bobby, with herself. Absolutely. Actually. But what's interesting
1: about it is that it isn't sort of piously educative. Mm-hmm. This yeah. this couple is a, a, you know, a fairly dysfunctional mm-hmm. couple, nonetheless. Um, but the thing is, the difference from her our, our first set of parents is that they are interested, they're curious enough Mm. about their own erotic lives Mm. in themselves and together to try and work something out Mm. Mm. to explore to make moves in one direction or or another so that there is something to use that word again alive Mm. about um, their relationship to one another and that I think that aliveness, that sense of you know a kind of ongoing erotic concern um, or an erotic going concern um, uh, that is, as far as we can see, sort of more or less missing from her early life. She's introduced to it. So it's, it's a good experience not in that sort of easy sense of something that runs smoothly and, and prettily, but in the sense that it, it's, it it crackles with libidinal energy, confusion, mm-hmm. difficulty. Um, the the worthwhileness of trying to understand and work through something, mm-hmm. y- even if you can't. Mm-hmm. We probably a bit of time
2: for
0: questions. For you. Got one? I have a comment
3: which is mm-hmm. is that she found the video of them singing. Nick and mm-hmm. Melissa, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about what you said, that um, with her own parents, she'd never seen them delight in each other or make each other laugh, and, and she sees Nick and Melissa happier times really entertaining other people, but really enjoying each other. And I was thinking that was probably, it was very moving, wasn't mm-hmm. so it?
4: Just interested in the dynamics of anorexia because she has that, doesn't she? And she reminded me of working with a group of young women with anorexia, and that sort of the, the difficulty not might not just be that people don't have a head but her difficulty in taking things in and enjoying, you know, enjoying them. She's not very funny. I mean, she's, she's not very. She's, I found her very humourless and sort of very serious. But that that. You know, how, to, how to kind of allow herself to kind of take something in and to take something from it mm. was really hard for her. Linked also to her incredible, and she's very young. And that, so all those things going on as well. And then sort of, uh, anyway, I just thought that was quite interesting because I, I, th- yeah. I thought that um, kind of anorectic aspect of her was
1: quite interesting. Well, it's it's intriguing what you say about sense of humour as well, because sense of humour is also a kind of, it's a mode of abundance, isn't it? It's a mode of overspilling. And you could say that that's another way in which she's thin, yet she does have a very developed, very dry, modern sense of humour, Mm -hmm. and in fact the way that she describes herself um, uh, and the way that she sort of, you know, sets down without comment her various sort of Humiliating layers of self-consciousness. You know, somebody's looking at her, and somebody's looking at her lo- being looked at. And, um, I think, but it, but it's not really
4: playful. It's it? a, it's
1: well, it's very closed. I mean, we, of course, get a window on it, and and the novel does actually make she does actually make me laugh, but in a way because of a kind of intimacy that the novel sets up, where you are privy to a very, this sort of very modern sensibility that maybe other people don't get to see, although I suspect sometimes they do as well. Um, I mean, the word anorexia, interestingly, is never mentioned. And um, uh, I mean, what, what is maybe clearer is how dysmorphic she is. You know, she. And she registers that for us because so many of the characters, I mean Nick most obviously, comment on how alluring she is, and how sexy she is. And yet she looks at herself and sees somebody dried up and, and kind of, you know, at, at sort of the, um, the, the low end of life. You know. But she
4: dries herself up as well. Yeah. There's clear descriptions of the loss of. And I just found, I thought that, I mean, in a way, I'm glad it wasn't mentioned. Because mm. it goes back to your point of, you know, you don't want to be in pathologies, but just as a sort of, as a dynamic rather than yeah. as a diagnosis. I yeah. thought it was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm. I, without wanting to summarize or simplify what
2: has been
5: said, but in terms of the... she is-
1: I mean maybe it's, it, because it is such a big question maybe it's worth answering simply in, by, by asking back well what do we want from a psychotherapeutic journey probably not anything <coughs> like total cure or complete resolution of the kinds of dilemmas that you're talking about the reason that I like aliveness as a formulation for what we might want to get out of an analytic experience is that it doesn't prescribe any particular outcome, it simply puts forward the hope that you might live a more involved, a more curious, a more kind of alive relationship to your own dilemmas rather than um, relate to them in the negative, in a mode of severance, dissociation, which is where we find her at the beginning of the book. So it's not that she learns more about or learns better about these formative relationships in some external sense where we could say well this is a better setup than where we started from it's only from an internal sense at least from you know my sense of what psychotherapy is it, it's only from an internal sense that she th- that we can that we can hope for something for her um, which is this Um. More involved internal relationship to everything that is tormenting and exciting and pleasuring and paining.
3: Now, what I thought was really interesting and lovely about the book as well was about um that she is an immigrant. She's a country girl who arrives in Dublin Mm. at this elite university. And so I thought issues about class were in there, mm. and about poverty. So I didn't read her as anorexic. Mm. I think it was really quite shocking how poor she was. Mm. And, um, and I think that when you asked about what was therapeutic, I did think she found her voice. Mm-hmm. She had a father who got to the edge and never said. And um, so the bit I loved was when she was in the sea with Nick, and she asked him, mm. didn't she, do you? What do you fancy about me, or what do you like, and he wouldn't answer her. And then later, at the novel, she asks him, "Why didn't you answer me?" And I thought, "Well, that shows that she's more robust. She's now persistent about what she desires." And I thought it was lovely when he said, "Well, now you're making me sound like a dick," because it hadn't occurred to him how withholding he was in not saying that, or how shaming, or so. But I, so I thought about literature, really, just by. How people, yeah. I thought, you know, young people coming to university, and really, they are, they have an internal blueprint, but then they meet all of these other people, and they meet literature and ideas, and mm. their world opens up. When you use that special about coming alive, mm. that you have, you find words to communicate what it is you feel and what it is you want. Mm.
0: I suppose you also in a way that connects to the question at the back of the remnant. Francis mm. mm. also. She's very clever, she's a very clever young woman, she's very self aware, she can probably think about her childhood. It's not knowledge that she lacks, it's connection to other people and loving relationships and affirming relationships and that is you know it's a novel about conversations, about mm. about making yourself heard and if you're not heard the first time saying I wasn't heard, this mm. is this is what I want and that's what she builds up the courage to do with the course of the novel, I think. So what she acquires isn't isn't knowledge, she acquires a different experience.
1: Which, She manages to give us that trajectory Mm. so unsentimentally, Mm, because she has a certain version of what a meaningfully loving relationship would be, which has nothing to do with sentimentality. Mm. Um, uh, It it has to do with investment, Mm. with uh, a commitment to sort of working with and through um, all kinds of tensions Mm -hmm. and frictions um, it's striking how you know much she brings alive both the lovability of Bobby and also her quite crushing Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm consciousness you know uh, again quite unsentimentally you know that scene where she's holding forth amongst the group of friends and humiliates the other student. Um, I mean, probably re-traumatised quite a few of us readers. (laughs) Um,
6: If I understand you rightly, you seem to be saying that, um, like the the young woman in Freud's essay, who hides her real desire, but between uh, behind this other kind of wish, this wish to see her younger brother dead, mm-hmm. that what Francis is really doing is hiding her real desire for Bob, Bobby w- in this relationship with, with Nick. Um, if if I've answered you rightly, I'm not
1: sure. I'm not sure that I would. You see, that there is in in Freud's um, vignette there isn't a wish to see the younger brother dead except in the form of a cover story. Now, which is the cover story in the novel? Is it Bobby or is it Nick? Um, And I I don't think the novel (coughs) gives us privileged access to the truth of those two versions of love. It doesn't say Nick is a defence against Bobby, but it also doesn't say Bobby is defence against Nick. And, and actually, when, you know, that, that last line, which could be a punchline that says, um, you know, I don't want this sort of pale, cutesy companionship in pyjamas with Bobby. I want somebody who's really going to take me and ravage me. I, do, I, I don't think that's what it's saying, I don't think that's the punchline. Um, I don't think we get to know what the punchline of the punchline is. That's why it's such an interesting punchline.
6: Right, because that was kind of my question. When I read it, it seemed to me that um, uh, what was going on for Frances is that she kind of doesn't feel... like Her her desire for Nick is taboo, so she kind of um, hides her real desire for Nick. Um, behind this um, story that she tells herself that what she's really doing is kind of trying to get Bobby's attention or trying to steal the husband of this woman that she envies. Yeah,
1: I mean, maybe controversially, I think one of the things the novel is doing is playing very ironically with one of the great reactionary storylines, which is that a man comes to a young homosexual woman and makes a woman of her. And, and and what what she is doing I think is deliberate quite quite provokingly that she does that all the time in the book she's awakened at various points um, in in this kind of wordless transporting ecstasy um, in bed with this man um, but instead of again sort of just giving us that narrative boldly she subjects it to all kinds of irony and you're not allowed to know whether... That is, in fact, the true version of events Mm. either. I I think everything is a disguise for everything else, in other words, in the book. I think you know, there are only screens, not in the sense, necessarily, that there are no true states of feeling, because there are true states of feeling. But the novel is about her troubled relationship to them and her sense that she sees everything through a mist. And we're not going to get to a point at the end of the book where she sees everything clearly.
6: I was thinking about this description of Sally Rooney, which I think you mentioned as the J.E. Salinger, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Snapchat image, which I personally find quite infuriating. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you have sort of a, you could give a psychological commentary, of, of especially in the context of script, of our kind of tendency to um, look at writers, usually female writers who are clearly quite excellent in their own right through the lens of,
1: usually male writers who are kind of long Yes. Um, you know, you, you make me think when you say a sort of psychoanalytic account of this I can only think of Harold Bloom talking about the anxiety of influence and somehow it is this sort of collective cultural fantasy that no one is allowed to come into being without the mediation of somebody else. Now of course that's true and and you know, really these novels are saturated with the ghosts of other novels and other writers. There are so many kind of great 19th century novels kind of haunting this, this, this one. But um, the, the, the problem with that kind of marketing formulation is that um, it, it, it closes down the whole, the, the richness of, of cultural transmission. Right? It gives us one brand name and, and, and attaches it to this new brand name and doesn't allow for difference, it doesn't allow for reinvention, it just kind of rigidifies, you know, oh right, so 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 this is a Salinger novel but, you know, for a generation that uses Snapchat and and, and that kind of closing down is actually so much not in the spirit of, of her writing which is so kind of open and generous to different cultural cards, both literary and non literary. You know, you, there's there's also it's also haunted by so many different films. I mean, you know, I don't know if you know Eric Romer's films, but um, a great French director of sixties, seventies, eighties. all his plots are really very similar to this one. Um, you know, Pauline à la plage, try try Pauline at the beach first.
0: Um, yeah. um, you spoke about how like, <laughs> one psychoanalytic view of dialogue, or a psychoanalytic view typically is that dialogue is ambiguous, mm. um, and uh, like with people present, and you have that presence and in the analytic experience you have that presence, that the ambiguity of the dialogue is easier to kind of get under in a sense because you have that physical presence why do you, it's obviously different when the dialogue is literary and the mm. almost interpreting the ambiguity takes on a different practice, What but and it's so powerfully ambiguous in this, but what do you think about what makes powerful ambiguous dialogue in a literary form? Well that's a
1: great question, and then also what differentiates from powerful ambiguous dialogue in say a consulting room or indeed mm. in a pub or a bedroom? Um In many ways, I don't think they're that different. I think what literature can do is is concentrate that ambiguity. It becomes a kind of crucible for ambiguities that we sort of let pass by in most of most of our daily life. Um, Although, of course, we don't let it pass by as well. I mean, I, you know, I know this from the consulting room. I can't think of how many sessions are organised around reported speech that often retrospectively becomes ambiguous, or indeed some email or text. But something that was communicated that seemed straightforward, that seemed very everyday at the time, there's something about it in the consulting room that, you know, under the gaze of the consulting room suddenly becomes... Sinister or insulting or, or, or exciting, you know. Was he making a pass at me? Um, in, in that sense, I think literature has a lot in common because it, it's a place where you can really make contact and sort of discover all these ambiguities that, that pervade everyday exchange everyday life, but, which of course we, we, I mean, it's in the nature of dialogue that we, we cannot notice it at the time, because if we did, we would be in a permanent, permanent relationship to one another. So in a way, an ordinary conversation is an extraordinary kind of testament to trust. You know, I trust that you'll say, so I, I will suspend belief and I will suspend all kinds of doubts to assume that what you're saying to me is more or less what you mean to say to me. Um, And yet, at the same time, the wheels of our minds' mechanisms are whirring away, picking up all kinds of other currents. Or, you know, we're we're kind of mistrusting the back of our minds as we're, we're trusting at the front of them.
0: you both mentioned that um, two very strong sort of parental influences on Francis in the book um, and in quite different ways. So I think the mother is more obviously a strong a strong character and almost overbearing and she's become quite good at expressing at least her displeasure in various ways if not much else um, and is reductive as you said. And then the father is much more absent obviously damaged and repressed. And
3: as a reader it was interesting to kind of figure out which was the dominant influence and how they marked her mm-hmm. and I wonder from a psychoanalytic perspective mm-hmm. which you would say was the dominant influence
0: on France. Mm-hmm.
2: Don't worry, we mm-hmm.
0: She has traits of both, I suppose. She has that kind of quite terse attitude towards self-care that her mum demonstrates towards her. You're fine, you're a tough, you can survive this, but also that. Self destructiveness that you mentioned, she's enormously self destructive. Just so. her father, her father who lives in kind of increasing squalor, who, you who know, every time he phones, we think this is it, this is the last phone call, and that's, I mean, that's quite an interesting tension. This mother who sort of completely ignores in a way anything that might be wrong. She'll survive at any cost, and the cost is kind of self knowledge, maybe and the father who's going completely the opposite direction, pure destruction and sort of no thinking at all. And I think she, she sits quite neatly between them. She has yeah, both. Yeah. I wouldn't say that she's more one than the other, yeah, yeah. And,
1: and I, I take and agree with your description, but I also think it can be flipped that mm-hmm. in the way the father is the more unrepressed character, because mm-hmm. he really has surrendered to his most death-like Instincts, um, whereas she, in a way, um, is almost excessively um, externalizing. You know, she, she, I think, loves but has to love on one level, and that's why she keeps insisting that she can't hate her father, which actually, although it's presented in, in quite a sort of concerned, affectionate way, it's a very damaging thing to say. To a daughter who's experienced the father that she's experienced, that actually there's a block on one of your most basic human emotional responses to your father, um, and even even that much more benign moment where she meets Nick and says how handsome he is, and they say, oh, wasn't that nice? I think it's a darker moment um, than than the novel allows us to see directly. <coughs> because there's again a kind of flippancy about it. There's non-concern. There's something that she's not seeing, which is that this relationship is one that in a way she's not equipped to process. That she you know, that she she the mother actually has given her nothing to make this relationship survivable.
0: Would you say she's entirely sort of imitating <coughs> influences
4: rather than uh, like pushing back? It, it's not a sort of backlash
1: influence they've had on her? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it, yeah, imitation. Um, well, what she's internalized is imitation because the parents imitate parents in a way. I mean, certainly the mother imitates a mother. It's not to say that she's inauthentic. Or that she's a liar emotionally because she isn't, but but her emotional resources only stretch to doing a very <coughs> genial impersonation of a loving parent.
0: And that's not only what she does, but what she insists on because she insists on upholding the father, saying your father is your father. You ought to love yeah. him. Yeah. We're not going to talk about him lying on the stairs and his parents. We're not going to talk about the ways in which he's failed you, because he is your father. Yeah. And so in that way, it's not just a not seeing, it's something more active. I think it's yeah. a real active refusal to see, just like when she meets Francis and Nick, and yeah. doesn't just not see, but I think refuses to see. And that's that's very damaging in itself, yeah. I think. I mean, just
1: very briefly, you yeah. know, you make me think that the, the novel has all these kind of slightly jokey references to Lacan, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the great opaque, French psychoanalyst of misrecognition. And um, uh, Lacan talks about the law of the father as being the symbolic system that keeps everything in place and, in a way, allows human relations to function. And so the drunken father in his pants, in a way, is a collapse of an entire symbolic order. And the mother is looking at it and saying, look, the the law of the father is fully intact. You don't need to worry about it at all. Everything's going fine, mm. just carry on loving you. Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah,
0: mm. really disturbing.
1: Very right, disturbing. <laughs> 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 I think we've got to finish. <coughs> got to finish. <coughs> yes, we have to finish. Thank you, okay. Georgia, for such an interesting.